Matthew 18 is a is a passage that you hear cited a lot in at least in Reformed circles. It has the very famous disciplinary text in it. But sometimes it goes unnoticed that uh, every major section in Matthew 18 deals with the removal of offenses in one way or another. So this it's really a sustained meditation throughout. And so it's it's certainly worthwhile for us to um, uh, to read the whole. We won't be examining or, or studying the whole tonight, but. Um, it super abounds in lessons. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Where if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, Cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, Doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he findeth it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, 
then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servant saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. I have a, a bit of a confession to make. Uh, when I was... When I was um, 
young, I could I could be a lot a bit of a of a controversialist. Um, if a subject like forgiveness came up, I I probably took comparatively little notice of it. Um, tended to gravitate toward uh, toward controversial uh, subjects. Uh, I hope that um, we don't lose interest and and focus when we when we leave some of those hot topics to consider some of these fundamentals of Christian spirituality and um, and Christian relating. And it was an interesting thing that happened to me. I you know I did enjoy a good debate. And there was something about that that I, I think is kind of natural and I don't know, maybe even okay. I, there is a certain sort of uh, appropriate joy that we can take in the in the exercise of our capacities, like um, like the exercising of the body, um, competing against our own personal bests and records. You know. Um, when I played football, I, I did enjoy testing my abilities against the, the man across the line of scrimmage from me and so on. I, if this can be true with respect to the, the capacities of the body, um, might even say how much more so concerning the capacities of the mind. Indeed, I, I wish that our culture delighted more in the, uh, in the exercise of the capacities of of the mind, but um, but I think we also all recognize that um, when it comes to those kinds of things, um, controversy there can be vanity, uh, pride can be evoked. Not good in any context. Inappropriate to the point of monstrous in. Uh, in the theological disciplines, to uh, to be sure. But what I what I have found, as I've as I've aged, and it didn't take me too long after I was ordained to the ministry to lose to lose all of my taste for controversy. Because when you have the responsibility not only to teach the people of God truth, but but also try to hold them together. Uh, controversy ceases to be anything delightful. When it comes up, rather, it becomes a, a matter of concern and even at times uh, fear and trembling. Um, the office of ruling elder and deacon, I guess, can participate in this somewhat. But there is an investment that the pastoral office has in the in the unity of the body that is is somewhat unique. In as much as a pastor in a settled charge, everything about his life is uh, tied up in the congregation. 
you might even say in a lot of ways, in most ways, his own well-being is tied up in the well-being of the flock. And those things that would threaten to blow the flock apart, um, uh, well, these things are, are menacing on about, about every possible level. So I found that my, my love of controversy, my, my excitement over de debate, altogether evaporated when I entered the, the ministry. And although uh, I continue, continue to be keenly interested in, um, well, everything that's, that's brought up by, by the word of God, everything from how do you render this Hebrew participle to um, you know, does the Bible teach supralapsarianism or infralapsarianism? And how do you know? I, I'm interested in all of these things. But I do find that um, the older I get, the more I tend to focus back a lot on, on the fundamentals of things. Not to neglect those finer points, but to make sure that they're well-grounded and that they're properly focused. I have been fascinated for a number of years. Some of you will know that um, uh, I was in the midst of a rather lengthy sermon series on the book of Revelation, very interested in the Apostle John and his, and his teaching ministry. Um, I think that the balance of ecclesiastical history indicates that his epistles were actually his last written productions. Um, the gospel seems almost certainly to be first. Revelation was written relatively late in his life, but it appears that his epistles were written even later. And so his career trajectory is very interesting to me. Um, out of the 12 apostles, John was the closest to Jesus. It might even be appropriate to say that John was Jesus' closest friend. The apostles were all intimate with him, but John enjoyed some peculiar intimacies. You might think of him just being one of three that was present for the transfiguration. And he and he alone was um, so very near to the Lord Jesus at the Lord's Supper, reclining upon his breast to, to hear every word that, um, that passed between the Lord Jesus and, and others. Think of all that was revealed to him in that. And then think of all that he was revealed to him at Patmos. Um, so much so that um, the old title for the, for the book is The Revelation of St. John the Divine. That is, St. John the, the Theologian. Uh, so deep, so profound is the theology of the book and um, the great mystery of the unfolding of history. But then when you come to his epistles, um, there's this abiding meditation upon 
truth and love and in a very simple, plain and, and straightforward kind of way. And um, it's interesting, we, we frequently set these things at odds with one another. Sometimes we do that individually when you observe people, Christian people. Um, you will find some that seem to gravitate more towards issues of truth and perhaps are comparatively chilly in the love department. Others very warm in love, but seem mystifyingly disinterested in points of truth. It is pretty rare that you find these things uh, equally strong. Perhaps this is part of what John is trying to teach us in, in his advanced age, because of course, by the time you get into the 90s AD, um, John is a very old man and uh, maturity, no doubt, is very much on his mind. He certainly doesn't think that these things should be at odds one with another. And when it comes to relationships, he, see, he certainly sees these things bound together. We are united together in the truth and John is also painfully aware that if false teachers can separate you from your common truth, they will separate you from your common bonds of love, your common fellowship. Uh, but but there's, a, there's a simplicity, there's a straightforwardness to it that, that's amazing. And in one way, it's the highest development of maturity in an individual or in a people when these things can be drawn uh, together with fullness. But there's also a simplicity, the, the foundation, even in the maturity, the foundation is there and it's also shining bright, strong, clear in all of its luster, the foundation of truth and love, truth and love, but now come, come to its fullness and its... Um, uh, fruition, as it were. And so when I was younger, uh, it'd be really easy to get me interested in a controversial doctrine, probably harder to get me interested in forgiveness, but, um, but now it's really easy to get me interested in a subject like forgiveness because I can see very readily how much is at stake for us. Uh, individually and in our in our relationships with with one another so let's just try to get our our bearings again um, I wanted to uh, try to work with a with a relatively full orbed conception of forgiveness not limiting ourselves to this or that definition, but, but very freely considering forgiveness in its relationship to other biblical concepts. As I mentioned, love is going to be the, the fountainhead, right? Love delights in the beloved. The, the old word is complacency. There's a resting uh, of the soul in the beloved. So there's this um, 
there's this desire for uh, relationship. And there's also a desire for the welfare of the beloved, whatever else we might say about love. And we can say a lot from the scripture, we can't neglect these things. And so it begins to be uh, plain how forgiveness grows out of love. Um, uh, without forgiveness, there can't be a relationship between sinners, right? So, so the loving heart wants to overcome offenses so that the relationship can continue undisturbed, maybe even grow into a greater fullness. And um, love that desires the welfare of the other is certainly not going to be meditating malice and vengefulness, not uh, nurturing hurt feelings and all of these other self-interested kinds of things. Uh, love wants the restoration of uh, the relationship. And so love is ready to forgive. So we, we've got it. Hopefully we can see a connection between love as a source, uh, you know, forgiveness as a, as a conduit or a means, and then the relationships as a certain kind of end, like we, we forgive so that the relationships might be maintained uh, and preserved, because of course the loving heart very much uh, values those things. So, so last week we turned our attention toward practice and probably a lot of ways to organize this, but I, I used Matthew as a, as a paradigm, uh, looking at two different possible situations. How do I handle a, a situation where my offense has disturbed a relationship with another? And uh, then the other would be, how, how do I act when another's offense has disturbed the relationship with me? So looking at the, at the former, we considered Matthew chapter 5. If you want to just flip back with me there, there are a few more words, a few more reflections that are um, worth making at this point. Uh, remember, we said that when, when we have either offended in fact or even at least in the perception of the other, our biblical responsibility is to go. And of course, because we value the relationship, we want to get this offense, whether it be real or perceived, removed. So that, the, so that the relationship might continue uh, unhindered, so we, so we go. And if I just might say so, um, when, we, when we offend, it's hard for us to make the approach because, because pride wants to rise up. We want to excuse, ex extenuate, explain away. Um, Right, we're, we're trying to save face in a measure. After long experience, it, it just looks more and more ridiculous to me all the time. 
Normally our reputation is much more readily restored to us when the offense that everybody else can can see in five seconds is admitted, confessed, repented of, and restitution. It, you start to find that everybody in the world is sympathetic, you know, because they've all been in the like position. When we extenuate, excuse, and everything else, uh, sometimes people let us get away with it, but almost nobody is ever impressed. So isn't it a funny thing? Pride is trying to save face, but what's actually happening is nobody's impressed, and almost nobody is is uh, fooled. But it's it's good when we're the offender in a certain way, because um, like. The ball is in our court for restoration. We desire the relationship, and there's there's much that can be done on our end of things. We can go. We can offer a sincere apology. If there is a restitution to be made, we can uh, make it. And uh, if we are meeting another, another Christian heart, that really ought to be enough to uh, close the relationship. Um, so that's good news, right? Like the balls in our court, we can do we can do something about this. We can do much to uh, remove the offense. Now we can't do everything that's necessary to uh, to fix the relationship. Our repentance at that point needs to be met with a real, sincere, heartfelt forgiveness. And if that's the case, then the the relationship can be restored. Um, if, if we go and we are not either our repentance is not met with forgiveness or, um, or our explanation that the offense isn't what they thought it was, like they've taken offense really when there was none. If our explanation is uh, not received, then the question does come up. Well, how how long do we how long do we continue? And all I can give you by way of a general principle is is we do continue to to try to repair the relationship until we're able to say with the Apostle Paul, as far as it concerns with me, I have lived at peace with all men. Like I I have done what I can to restore peace in the relationship. But the simple fact of the matter is, um, it only takes one person to mess up a relationship. And we're all, because we're sinners, messing them up all the time. But it takes two people to restore and maintain a relationship. It really requires all of the parties for relationships to, to work. And so we continue in it uh, until we begin to recognize, well, I, I have done all that I can if I go again, I can't see any uh, possibility, but but I'm here with open heart and open hand, ready to restore the relationship just as soon as the other person is is ready for that for that restoration and we and then we uh, we wait upon it. But we we also brought up um, the situation like what if, 
what if we've taken offense? It's kind of the mere images. Of, what if we've taken offense and our our brother comes with an explanation that we've really taken offense unnecessarily, but we're really not wanting to let it go, or we're not altogether satisfied with the with the explanation and so on. Uh, I do think Matthew five uh, gives good counsel. And I, I've now done enough of this in, in pastoral ministry to know on a, uh, on a much more profound level just how true these words are. I've lived them over and over again. Uh, pick up with me at verse 25 of chapter 5. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. If I, if I might paraphrase the counsel of our blessed Lord at this point, it is... Uh, Reconcile on easy terms. Agree with thine adversary quickly. Um, and what's very interesting is um, the Lord is opening up to us something here that I think a lot of times, in sometimes in our pride, sometimes in our hurt, we're not wanting to recognize, which is, if there's a sifting down to the details, it's probably going to end up being a painful hardship to everybody involved. And at the end, it's probably not going to be as fruitful or helpful as what you thought it would be. This is very much the, um, uh, the analog to the James five be be easy to be entreated but with with more reasoning here he says agree very quickly reason i bring that up is if somebody comes let's say they really have offended but their their repentance is only partial they've only got part of it um, remember that this instruction from the lord um, agree, agree quickly and remember, sifting it to the bottom is not likely to get get you what you think it's going to get you, uh, and it's not likely to make any things more more painful. It's likely to make things more painful than it would have otherwise been because the sifting here is not not portrayed as being particularly um, uh, pleasant, helpful, or or healthy. But the sifting will come. I can't tell you, so a lot of times in pastoral counseling and trying to work with parties that are odd, at odds with one another, um, I have had the situation where an offender has, has offered an apology to the offended and the offended was not alone. I was sitting there was also able to recognize that there were inadequacies in the apology. Maybe it didn't cover all of the things. Um, 
maybe there were the signs of remorse in it that you might hope or or whatever given the gravity of the issues there can be a lot of things just remember that's also going to be part of the nature of the case even our uh, repentance is going to be defiled with our sinfulness or to put it another way nobody is ever going to apologize to you perfectly how many times is that going to happen to you in your life that will be zero times so we need to let go of that as far as an expectation it's even our repentance is always going to be mixed with our infirmities our imperfections and our sins so I can't tell you how many times I've sat through a meeting like that and then the offender goes away and I sit with the offended and they are dissatisfied. And I've sat there and I've said, I hear you, but given the remainder that's left over, you should just cover that in love. And if it's a, if it is a real character issue, you're going to get another chance to work on it because it'll it'll come back you don't have to try to get everything out of this particular situation but you got something you got much uh, there's there's much to encourage here much to be to be uh, uh, hopeful and so it's time to put this offense behind and then they were unable to uh, I can't tell you how many times they were unable to then heed that pastoral counsel. One way or another, they um, they insisted on the sifting. They wanted it to become much more particular. And we all, offender, offended, and pastor, got to take a, a trip to the school of pain because the because the sifting is exactly as the Lord Jesus describes it here, as um, the chafing, the grinding, the the formal proceedings, the other parties that end up getting involved to try to get at those those last uh, elements. Um, far from being helpful, edifying, and healthy. Um, it just ended up being this painful school that the that the Lord counsels us to uh, evo avoid. So I will leave it at that point uh, as as far as practical instructions on what to do when um, when uh, offending another. So now the question comes: What do we do when we are offended? We have enough time to at least. To at least get a start so what do i do to restore a relationship when somebody has sinned against me and just remember just like always love and its desire for edification uh, the well-being of the other their upbuilding always ought to be in the foreground now when you've offended another i just said you know just go when you're offended, you might have to go, but you might not. Because forbearance might very well be the right move at this point. So flip with me again to Colossians chapter 3. 
So love, love doesn't want to suffer any sin to be left upon the upon the beloved, but at the same time, um, being a self, we know that. Uh, well, think about the way that the Lord Jesus has handled you. You don't have perfect clarity on all of your your offenses, but He does. But isn't it a great blessing that uh, when he first met you salvifically, that he did not undertake to address all of your faults all at once in those first moments? It would be overwhelming. If, uh, if you consider the forbearance of the Lord, the mercy that's entailed in it, and it is a great mercy because... Uh, Frequently facing our our faults, our our sins, especially those bosom sins, can be quite painful, even to the point of of being overwhelming. But he, uh, in his in his goodness, his kindness, his gentleness, his mercy, he does not overwhelm us. But frequently, if you think about your Christian life, hasn't it usually been the case that the Lord is dealing with you about one or two things at a time? And somehow the other things, and you know that there are an ocean of them, but the other things somehow are, are pushed into the background. And he draws these few things to the foreground. And this is the right season for, for working on these things. Well, love does this in, in relationships as well. Um, and if you just look at Colossians 3, 13, um, well, back up to verse 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So we, we're going to... Uh, do the heart work of forgiving when, when we have been sinned against. That means wrath, malice, anger, all of that is going to have to be put away. The desire for any sort of retributive vengeance is going to is going to have to be put away. Love focuses on the beloved. There is uh, a sin that is that's involved there that that's harming the beloved sinner, right? And so we would like to see that removed, but then all sorts of considerations come into view, like, um, is, is this likely to be, modern language would call it constructive. Is this a constructive time to engage it? The old Bible word is edifying. Like, is this going to be an edifying time to engage? I learned a lot about this in, uh, in marriage. I would... Of course, uh, living very closely with somebody, if we if we try, frequently we can just look and we can know this is not a good time to try to address that. Like open seasons, profitable seasons come, but we need to exercise some some patience, some forbearance, 
but since this is not a good time, not a profitable time, not a time where the beloved's likely to be edified, but perhaps frustrated, uh, discouraged, whatever the case might be, um, we might just choose at that time to forbear, to cover the matter in love, certainly to forgive it. Now, this is not necessarily to to leave the sin upon the soul forever either, but rather to uh, continue to look thoughtfully for a con convenient and a constructive season in which these things can be uh, can be addressed. So if somebody has, has sinned against you, Uh, rather than rather than just saying go, I would say first consider. Right? Is this a good time? Is this the right? Are these the right circumstances? Is this likely to be a constructive and edifying uh, situation? Because at the end of the day, I don't want to just be helping at the beloved. Um, but I, I want to actually help. And so there are lots of personal dynamics that not, need to be considered. And, and at the end of the day, you might think, well, that's a lot of thought work. Isn't it uh, just much simpler to charge in there and just do it? It is a lot of, a lot of thought work, but I do believe that uh, that true love will will be willing to do to do that kind of uh, work. Well, I see that our, our time is is almost gone. But uh, there will come a time, and there will be times when the nature of the offense might be such or the circumstances might be such that it is time to engage. Right, and that's why we we started with Matthew 18, which gives us some pretty detailed instructions on how to how to engage the beloved in a way that is most conducive to edification. Now, to say most conducive does not does not say that it's going to guarantee that the beloved can take profit. Here we we rest upon our broader Calvinistic theology, we, we actually don't have any ability to edify one another. Um, that's going to be up to the Spirit to, to add his blessing to the means. But what we do is we, we study to implement the means as he has given them, Matthew chapter 18, right? So we try to conform ourselves to those means because those are the means that are most conducive to the desired ends, which would be the the edification of of the beloved, the the rescue from uh, the hurtfulness of the sin that is uh, that is immediately in view. But we will look at the we will look at the details of that uh, next week. Let us pray together.